Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad to have you here on this holiday weekend. Three places in the Bible I'd like you to turn this morning. Psalm 100, Hebrews chapter 9, and 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at each of these passages throughout our message this morning. The first one, Psalm 100, Hebrews chapter 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews. And I believe that the author of Hebrews is calling the recipients of this letter in chapter 9 to worship. Very appropriate. Why is he calling them to worship? Because they are considering not continuing to follow Jesus Christ. Like many, even in Jesus' day, those who started out following him get to a point where they say, we're done. We're, We're not following anymore. And the author is going to remind all of us that the only way we will sustain our fellowship of Jesus is to truly become worshipers of Jesus. As Christians, we must go from those who believe to those who follow, and we've talked a lot about that in the book of Hebrews, becoming who God created us to be, maturing and growing up in our faith, becoming spiritual adults rather than staying spiritual children, But in order, again, to sustain that kind of following throughout our entire earthly life, we must get to the place where we learn to worship the Lord. Now, I wanted to start with Psalm 100 because it is really out of even all the Psalms, and of course you know that many of the Psalms are nothing more than worship songs, That Psalm 100 is really a call to worship. I'd like you to look at it with me this morning. I love this psalm. Shout out praises to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with joy. Enter His presence with joyful singing. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we belong to Him. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give him thanks. Praise his name for the Lord is good. His loyal love endures and he is faithful through all generations. Why does the Bible talk so much about worship? Why does God call us to worship? To become worshipers. For this reason, who or what we worship shapes our hearts. Let me repeat that, brothers and sisters, because that's important. Who or what we worship shapes our hearts. We become what we worship. We resemble what we revere. That is why idolatry throughout the Bible is always being warned against. 
Because an idol is anything that takes the place of God and the worship of God in our lives. And God knows, obviously, the danger and the destructiveness of idolatry. Because when God called us to be a believer, His intention wasn't that we just stayed believers and that we became followers, but that we grew into being worshipers. Because all along, it was about being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God didn't just want us to be informed about Him. He wanted us to be transformed by Him. Which is why the Bible calls us to that. And talks a lot about that. Be not conformed to this world, Paul says in Romans 12 too, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians Paul talks about the fact that though our outward man is perishing, the inward man can be renewed day by day. The verse that I shared earlier out of Romans 8, that the purpose of our salvation is so that we may be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. As we say here at the Oasis and remind ourselves of many times, the Bible is not just for information, it's for transformation. God doesn't just want us to know Him. God wants us to be changed, to be like Him in the way that you and I can be like God. That's why it's important to become worshipers. And that's why then, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9... The author here calls these people and calls all of us to worship. Now, before he gets into all of that, I want to divide the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning into sort of three sections. And the first is that the author wants to remind his readers and all of us about the limitations of Old Testament worship. Because that's really, if, if the folks that he was writing to, the Hebrews, the first century Jews who had embraced Christ, if they were going to go back to anything after not following Christ, it was going to be to the Old Testament worship. And he's saying, you realize, you're not, there's nothing there for you. What you already have is superior to that. What are you going to find there that you cannot already find in a greater way in Christ. It sort of reminds me as people were continuing to not follow Jesus more and more, Jesus turned to his disciples at that point and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom or what are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I love that because it really is a point where even as a Christian, if I say, well, I'm going to stop following Jesus, then what are you going to go to? What are you going to go back to? What are you going to find in your life better or more fulfilling or satisfying than Jesus Christ? And we've already seen it. The author has painted a very clear picture for us throughout these first several chapters of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is God's best, very best. You and I can't improve on that. So once we have Jesus Christ, what else could we turn to or go to that's going to be better than Jesus Christ? So in chapter 9, he begins this way. He says, Now the first covenant, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, 
had regulations for worship and its earthly sanctuary. Now, at the end of verse 5, he says, now look, now's not the time to speak of these things in detail. And of course, he, he gives us all in those first five verses, all the major sort of parts of the tabernacle. And all of that, it's pretty foreign to most of us. You know, we might, again, learn about it from the study of God's Word, but that's not what we were, you know, used to in our worship. And he doesn't want to spend a lot of time there. But what he does want to remind his readers, and even us, is there were limitations under the Old Testament system. It was incomplete rather than complete. It was temporary. It wasn't eternal as what we have through Christ. So notice what he says in verse 7 of chapter 9. He reminds them, only the high priest entered once a year into the intertent. Basically into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest on the day of atonement and only once a year. Keep that in your mind for a few moments. Then he goes on to say, and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Keep reading along with me. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is making clear that the way into the holy place, into the very presence of God, had not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle was standing. This was a symbol for the time then present when gifts and sacrifices were offered. Notice, that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You're seeing the limitations here of the Old Testament system. Only the high priest could only enter into the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God only once a year. Second, all of these sacrifices, they only provided a ritual purity, a ceremonial external purity. They could do nothing to totally purify the conscience of the worshiper from the inside out, the author says. They served, verse 10, only for matters of food and drink and various washings. They are external regulations imposed until the new order came. Then if you go down to chapter 10 for just a few seconds. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself, and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to, notice, worship. It's not that the Old Testament system was bad. It's just it had so many limitations under the Old Testament system. Because in verse 2, he says, For otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers would have been purified once for all, and so to have no further consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. I could go on and on here today, and so could the author of Hebrews, but he wants to remind us in the New Testament age about the limitations of the Old Testament system. Think about it. And yet, if you read the Old Testament, you find that many men and women did great things for God. Served Him in incredible ways in spite of the limitations of 
that system of worship that God was using in a mighty way to lay the foundation and build the foundation for what was to come completely and permanently through Jesus Christ. And I think if nothing else, it it reminds us as New Testament Christians how thankful we should be. And that's what he wants to get to next. Because beginning then in chapter 9, verse 11, he reminds us in contrast about the limitlessness of the New Testament worship. Yes, there were limitations under the Old Testament system. And yet many men and women of God served God, followed God, were faithful to God, did many unbelievable things for God in spite of the limitations. And yet the author is saying to his readers and to us, let's not forget now about the limitlessness of New Testament worship. Because he says, verse 11, chapter 9 of Hebrews, but now Christ has come as the high priest of good things to come. Remember what Jesus said to his followers? Listen to this verse out of John 14, 12. He said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. In other words, it was Jesus' way of of sort of gathering uh, someone's face and and putting his hands. Please listen to this. This is really important. I want you to get this. He said, I tell you the solemn truth that the one who continues believing in me will perform the miraculous deeds that they have seen me do and even greater works than these because I go to my Father. Most people who claim to follow God really don't believe that. Or else the church, made up of believers, would look different. Greater works? Come on, Jesus, you don't even know what you're talking about. Because we limit ourselves as the people of God, not truly believing what Jesus himself said. Look at what you could do under this New Testament system that is superior to the Old Testament because of what Jesus did. In fact, notice in verse 14 of chapter 9, the author says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? Say, how is this so much superior? Well, again, remember under the Old Testament, only the high priest, not everybody, Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and, in a sense, meet face to face and enter into the presence of God. Today, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, when Jesus died and the Bible says the the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, it was God's way of saying, the way has now been opened. If you want to come to me, anyone can come to me as long as you come through the sacrifice and blood of my son, Jesus Christ. The way has been opened. Paul said in Romans 5, 2, that we stand in faith into this access that we now have 
because of Jesus Christ. How many of us, and I include myself, take this for granted? In the Old Testament, anybody and everybody just couldn't enter into the presence of God. Only the high priest and only him once a year. You and I can enter the presence of God any time we like. We can call out to him in prayer and he will hear us and he will answer us. The limitations have been put away through Christ and now there is that this limitlessness. We can get as near to God as we want to get. Unlike under the Old Testament where it's like, nope. Can't quite get that close yet. And you think about it. Again, it's not like, well, look at people like Moses and all that. Yeah, they, they had face-to-face encounters with God, obviously. But folks, again, let's remember something. God would come upon them and empower them and enable them to do great things for a time. But unlike again in the New Testament, God did not dwell within them like he does now through us, the church. Because unlike the tabernacle that was symbolic of God's presence amongst his people, where if you study the out, sort of outline of the tabernacle, God's presence, the Holy of Holies, all of that was right smack dab in the middle of the 12 tribes. And there were three tribes on each side encircling it so that God would literally be smack dab in the middle of his people. But under the Old Testament system, the people of God weren't the temple of the Holy Spirit. And today, we not only have God with us, we have God through His Holy Spirit in us, the Bible says. The limitations have been taken away. In fact, keep your finger there in Hebrews 9 and go over to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, look at first of all verse 5. You yourselves, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, God's people now, under the New Testament through Christ, are a spiritual house. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are living, we are alive. And notice, all of us, not just one of us, all of us are considered now priests and priestesses of God. Because all of us now, through Jesus Christ, have been granted an access into God and with God that only the high priest had in the Old Testament and only once a year. And then look at verse 9. I love this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To become worshipers and to realize the limitlessness of our worship as God's people in this New Testament age because of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Again, The only limitations we have of getting close to God is the ones that we place on ourselves. 
because of Christ, you and I can get as near and close to God as we want to. And that's where worship comes in. Because again, remember, why is worship so important? Because who or what we worship shapes our heart. It affects our desires, our choices, our passions. We become what we worship. We resemble what we revere. Which is why then if you go back to Hebrews chapter 9, I want to show you this. In verses 24 through 28, the last section of Hebrews 9, the author points out sort of three appearances of Jesus, past, present, and future, all dealing with the different, what I call, tenses of salvation. And if you mark your Bible, I would mark these. The first one is found in Hebrews 9.26. I'm going to take them in chronological order. Where he says, but now he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. Mark the words, has appeared. And notice, unlike the blood of bulls and goats that could not provide any real solution, could not get rid of the guilt and the shame of sin and really deal with sin at its core, the blood of Jesus Christ had the power to be able to deliver us from sin. And in this verse, the author is reminding us that Jesus Christ, through his first appearance when he came in Bethlehem and then grew and, and, and went to the cross and died for our sin, that he appeared first to put away the penalty of sin, to save us from the penalty of sin. But then notice, and we looked at this last week, verse 24 of chapter 9. Now... He is into heaven himself, into heaven itself. And now he appears with God in God's presence, the Father for us. Mark appears now. It's not like Jesus' ministry to us or care about us or concern about us or love for us finished when he ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. The Bible tells us right now that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father in the best possible place in the universe He could be to help us and that He is there appearing in God's presence for us. We learned in chapter 7, verse 25 last week, He intercedes for us. He prays for you and I every day. I hope that will encourage you. Not only is it encouraging when we know that other people are praying for us, I want you to know today when you leave this place, and even before you came today, Jesus was praying for you. And then notice the final one. So, in that sense, He's saving us from the power of sin. But then notice verse 28. So also, after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, again in contrast to the many sacrifices, year after year after year, He was offered once to bear the sins of many. For those who eagerly await Him, He, and here's the next two words, will appear, mark those, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin this time, but to bring 
salvation, the consummation of our salvation, what we call in the Bible glorification, where we now are not only saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin one day when we get to heaven. Where the Bible tells us in heaven, there is no more sin. Only righteousness dwells there. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. And he's saying all this to remind us of the limitlessness of our worship. No wonder the psalmist said, Come, let's bow down and worship. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker. There's something missing in the church today. And even though we can say we come and and we sing worship songs and we, we praise Him and all of this, that is a very important part of worship. But it, it mostly has to deal with our heart. Because worship isn't something that a person does just for an hour on Sunday. Worship is something that we do 24-7. Because again, as I shared with the folks on Wednesday night, worship comes from the words worthship, which comes from the word worthy. Why do we worship? Because we believe God is worth our worship, that He is worthy, that there is a value and worth that we give to God above anything and everything else. Because He is our Creator. He is our Savior. He is our Sustainer. He is our very life and our very breath. Everything that we have comes from Him. Therefore, we owe Him everything we have. God has given us His best in Jesus Christ. His Son. Is our best His? The limitlessness of New Testament worship. And let me say this at this point. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this before I say this. I'm not just saying this about her because her mom and dad are here today. I want you to know that if you don't already know that one of the great blessings we have here at the Oasis to have Nicole as our worship leader is because for her, it's never been about leading us or leading her team to anything more than getting our hearts to align with God. Because that's what worship is. It's not about entertainment. It's not about the skill of the people up here like it is in a lot of churches today. It's not about trying to woo people and like, wow, they're really good and talented. I mean, that's good. But if it doesn't draw ourselves closer to God, if it doesn't wrap our heart up with God, then it's not real biblical worship. In my opinion, even in our culture, forget the church, we are being entertained to death today. We must be entertained all the time. We don't know what it's like to just not be entertained by something. I think God would say, you want to be entertained? Be entertained by me. I got more of me than you could ever handle. Enthrall yourself with me. 
Engage yourself with me. I am calling you to a life of worship. And when we learn to worship, our following of Jesus will be sustained. You see, following Jesus or serving Jesus or ministering for Jesus without worship as the motivation and fuel behind it really is legalism. And you see it rampant throughout Christianity even today. There are so many people that they do what they do, but not out of a heart of worship. It's out of a heart of duty. It's out of a heart of obligation. It's out of guilt. It's out of manipulation. It's out of all of these other reservoirs, but it is not out of the reservoir of worship. And only when you and I serve and love him and, and do whatever we do for him out of a heart of worship, then that's when it's properly placed. Because then we're doing everything that we do for God and living the way we are and all of that because we want to, not because we feel we have to. And that's what the author here is saying to his people. You're running out of spiritual fuel because your life is not being fueled by worship. You've lost that heart for worship. And then he closes with this. Look at verses 27 and 28 where we see, finally, the life and death repercussions of our worship. The life and death repercussions of our worship. When he reminds all of us, just as people are appointed to die once. Let me stop there. Do you realize for every one of us, even though we can be very alive right now, that all of us as human beings have an appointment? All of us have an appointment with death. I don't know about you, but I haven't, I haven't heard or found of any other human being throughout history that dodged this appointment. Now, maybe God took them like he did with Elijah or Enoch. Maybe someone like poor Lazarus had to die twice because he resurrected him. But every human being has got to go through that door of death. That valley of the shadow of death. And I guarantee you this. When you get to that place in your life, or when you even think about that, and consider that, even though you might be very young and think that that day is a far, far ways away, you're going to be glad you were a worshiper of Jesus when you die. Because the only thing that's going to matter to you when you get to that point in your life is, do I have Jesus or not? Because I can tell you from personal experience as a pastor for 32 years, being in hospital rooms and many homes where people were passing away, there was a huge difference between those who knew Jesus and were worshipers of Jesus and those who didn't. Because the one thing you're going to want in your life, when you come to that point, when I come to that point, is that the Lord is my shepherd. That way I know I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he says, after death to face judgment. And he's talking here to believers. 
But folks, there's more than just judgment for our sin, which we know as Christians has already been taken care of when you and I placed our personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior because of what He did on the cross. God will never judge us for our sins. Romans 8.1 clearly states, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not stand in our own righteousness before God. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You and I are never going to have to be judged for our sin. But the Bible does teach that each of us, even as followers of Jesus Christ, will have to give an account of himself to God. Romans 14.12 Romans 14, 12. Each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. By the way, notice a very important word, himself or herself. You and I aren't going to have to give an account for anyone else. Nor is anyone else going to have to give an account for us. But we are going to have to give an account for ourselves. What does that mean? It means we're going to have to answer some questions from the Lord. Specifically, what did we do with the limitlessness of this New Testament worship. What did we do with our life? Did our life get caught up in worshiping other things more than God? Did we put so much effort and run after all these other things that when we die and we go into eternity for all of eternity, really... 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, 10 million years from now, when eternity is just beginning, it won't matter. Because when you and I stand before the Lord and give an account, the only thing that really is going to matter is, did I worship Jesus? Was I a worshiper? And so he goes on to say, So also, after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. I want to close this morning by drawing your attention to two very important words, eagerly await, in verse 28. In the Greek language, these words speak of this. It speaks of one's attention being drawn away from something inferior to something superior. So notice what he's saying here. Those who eagerly await Jesus, the focus of their life, the passion of their life is Jesus and the things of Jesus and the kingdom of God and all of that. It's not about earthly things anymore. Because they're inferior. They won't last. They won't make it past our death. Only what's done for Christ and in the name of Christ will last. And so this is also a term that reminds us that for, for us, it speaks about the fact that the world and what it offers has sort of lost its attraction to us. It has nothing to offer us. 
And you think about that. You see that throughout the Bible. Remember in the temptation of Jesus, Satan takes him up to this high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world, said, Jesus, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And of course, Jesus is like, kingdoms of the world? Why would I want the kingdoms of the world? I've got the kingdom of God. What is it about the kingdoms of the world that are going to attract me? They're temporary. One day they're going to, they're going to be gone. Love not the world, John says. Neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they are passing away. But he or she who does the will of God, they will remain forever. You think of Lot's wife. And Jesus even said, remember Lot's wife? Story in that. God wanted to deliver Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed. And the Bible tells us that Lot's wife's heart really wasn't in pursuing God and moving forward with God. Her heart was back in Sodom. She, she yearned for Sodom more than she did for God. And when she looked back, the Bible says, he turned her into a pillar of salt. As an example to one who can be delivered from something and whose heart is still back here. Rather than, the Israelites were that way. Remember after God, through Moses' leadership, set them free out of Egypt? They got out of Egypt and then they started murmuring and complaining and saying, God, it'd be better for us to stay back in Egypt. We had it better back in Egypt than we have it out here in this wilderness with you. God said, fine, you'll wander for 40 years. Because if what I'm offering you isn't as good as what the world is offering you, fine. See, The author is saying, when we eagerly await, it means the world has lost its grip on us. It has nothing more to offer us. All we are looking forward to is worshiping Jesus every day of our life, living for Him and His kingdom, and living for eternity, and investing in eternity. And nothing that the world has to offer us really is attractive to us anymore. We just can't wait to be with Jesus. But as long as we're here, we're going to live for Him every second while we're here. Because we know at the end of it all, when we get to eternity, that's all that's going to matter, folks. That is all that's going to matter. Let's stand as we pray. God is calling us to worship today. He is asking us to not just believe, not just follow, but to become a worshiper. That's what the Old Testament was all about. That's what the New Testament was all about. It was was about worship. But there were so many limitations under the Old Testament system that have now been taken away through the sacrifice and blood of Jesus Christ. And we stand here today basking and bathing in all the advantages and resources that they never had in the Old Testament. What are we doing with it all? So God, I say today, may we declare to you as we respond to what the psalmist called us out to do. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
Amen.